Welcome to Neurosalience, the OHBM podcast. Welcome to the Organization for Human Brain Mapping Neurosalience podcast. I'm the host, Peter Banatini. In this podcast, I interview brain scientists and discuss their work as well as the latest advancements and challenges in the field of brain mapping. Today is unique in that we're talking about one very cool and very useful fMRI acquisition strategy called multi-echo EPI. Well, it's been around for over 20 years, only a fraction of papers reporting fMRI results have used it. However, recent papers have come out showing that it significantly helps increase sensitivity and to mitigate artifacts. In fact, several prominent leaders in the field are embracing it as they're convinced that it's essential for increasing the reproducibility and ultimately the clinical utility of fMRI. My guests are Charles Lynch and Prante Kundu. Charles Lynch is a postdoctoral associate in neuroscience and psychiatry at Weill Cornell Medicine in New York, who received his PhD in 2018 from Georgetown University in Washington, DC, and has written several impactful papers convincingly describing the benefits of multi-echo EPI for fMRI. Prantik Kundu is a pioneer in multi-echo EPI processing. Having developed the powerful approach called multi-echo ICA, to process multi-echo EPI data. In 2014, Prontik received his PhD from the University of Cambridge. He was a student of both Ed Bulmore and myself, working in the NIH Cambridge uh, graduate program. He was an assistant professor at Mount Sinai in New York before moving to be lead scientist at a company called Hyperfine. And this company recently came out with uh, the first uh, ultra-low field a portable MRI scanner. Recently, he started in the position of chief technology officer at a company called Serotype Neuromedicine. And this company is based in Boston and is pioneering precision neuropsychiatry. This is towards increasing the clinical relevance of functional brain imaging. So I, I hope you enjoy the conversation as we talked about you know, multi-echo EPI, what it can do, what it can't do. We talk about issues such as what strategies to use for processing it, what parameters to use that might work best in your studies. Um, we also talk about options for users to go to for processing package, packages that are set up for multi-echo EPI. Uh, we also talk about the wider issue of why it's not disseminated as much as it could be and how it might be disseminated more. So once again, I hope you enjoy the conversation. Uh, it's very informative and uh, it was a lot of fun. Just to begin, let's just uh, start off by introducing yourselves. So why don't we start with Charles? Uh, uh, yeah. Welcome to the show. Uh, thanks, uh, thanks for having me. Uh, so I, I'm a postdoc currently at Weill Cornell Medicine. Uh, I'm working with Connor Liston. Uh, I'm trained originally uh, as a cognitive neuroscientist working 
primarily with resting state fMRI. Uh, and kind of my core research interest um, over the past few years has been characterizing um, functional brain organization at the individual subject level. Um, this kind of work stands in contrast to how functional brain networks have been studied um, kind of historically by, you know, pooling data from many individuals, constructing group average maps. Um, what's really exciting about this approach, and this is, you know, work that's been pioneered by other groups, including folks like Russ Poldrack and Nico Dosenbach and Randy Buckner. Um, what's really exciting about this approach is that there's a clear path um, that we can see for clinical translation um, or a clearer path. Um, uh, and specifically, the, the, the kinds of applications that I have in mind are identifying targets for stimulation interventions in patients that may or may not be um, uh, more effective. Um, and my interest in multi-echo fMRI and how I kind of became involved with it stems from this, uh, this research interest and specifically um, the challenges that are inherent to this type of work. Right. The fMRI signal is incredibly noisy and especially at the single subject level. And um, you know, one of the, the big challenges to delineating targets for stimulation intervention or doing anything at the individual level is this question of the extent to which the inferences we're making from the data are reproducible or reliable. So um, as I started my, my postdoc here, um, this is one of the questions that you know I kind of constantly had in the back of my mind and I'm you know, my PNI were looking for tools and approaches that may help boost reliability at the single subject level. And I kind of stumbled upon multi-echo fMRI, talking with um, uh, Jonathan Power, who was a resident in psychiatry at the time in our department. He kind of oriented me to this technique and, um, you know, how to, how to acquire it, how to analyze it. And, you know, the, those conversations ultimately led to um, uh, the work that you know we published in Cell Reports a few years ago, um, showing how this technique, for multiple reasons, is able to improve the reliability of functional connectivity measurements um, at the single subject level. So that's kind of the, the main overview of my research interests and you know how I became interested in multi-echo fMRI. Um, okay. All right. Well, thanks. Thanks. Yeah, and all those points that you bring up, we'll, we'll definitely touch upon uh, as we. Cool. As we start the conversation, but, but Prantik, uh, Prantik Kundu. Yeah. Hey, Peter. Thanks for having me. Um, hi, I'm Prantik Kundu. Um, I'm a neuroscientist and a biophysicist, I guess. Um, uh, my background is a bit of a mix of uh, academic and now industry work. So I'll start with my current work and go backwards a little bit. Um, so currently I'm a, I'm a CTO of a new company called Serotype, which is a uh, pursuing commercialization of a lot of the technology that we're talking about on the basis of its apparent translatability. Uh, so we're excited about that. And then before this, I was at Hyperfine Research, where I spent about four years. Um, I started as senior image reconstruction scientist, um, uh, went on to lead the cloud and deep learning teams for a little while. And there we innovated uh, deep learning reconstruction for low field MRI. And this was the first sensor to image reconstruction technique, and it really, really helps with attenuating, attenuating noise levels and taught us a lot about the underlying structure of the data, so that was a lot of fun. Um, before that, I was an assistant professor at uh, Mount Sinai School of Medicine in the departments of radiology and psychiatry. Um, there I work with Zahid Fayad and uh, Piti Balchandani, uh, Rita Goldstein, a um, number of people there. And uh, I was a methodologist 
um, in the fMRI area. I worked at 7T and 3T quite a bit. And what was really fun and special there was the interaction with patients. Patient groups were very tight. So uh, we had a lot of opportunities for really interesting experiments. We got a bunch of grants, so that was fun. And then before that, I was getting my PhD with Peter and uh, Ed Bulmore at the University of Cambridge. I was part of the NIH Cambridge Scholars Program and uh, did that for about four years. That was a very transformative experience. <laughs> and then before that, I have a little bit of sprinkling of um, computational chemistry and stuff like that. So. Okay. Yeah, I remember uh, actually right when you when you were a, a student. I, you know, we had some multi-echo data, and uh, uh, I, you know, I said, oh well, you know, see if you can, you know, make some use of this. Uh, <laughs> little did I know of the impact. Um, I, think, I think we got it. <laughs> it worked out incredibly well. Um, so so let's just start at the at the very beginning. I mean, multi-echo. You know, I mean, there's there's really it's interesting. And multi-echo has been around for a really long time. Uh, actually, I even remember, you know, working with my colleague Eric Wong at Medical College of Wisconsin back in 1991, and we had a rudimentary multi-echo EPI sequence, and we just did it. And we did other things like echo stepping and things like that. But uh, I think Stefan Posse uh, was the person who pretty much uh, early on promoted it uh, in the mid '90s to late '90s. Um, but it hasn't really taken off. So, so what? Um, so, uh, I don't know. Uh, maybe Prontic. Uh, I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about what multi echo is. And uh, and Charles, feel free to jump in anytime. But um, sure. Uh, uh, you know, maybe just talk about a little bit about the pulse sequence itself for those of for the, those users who those people who do fMRI who who you know don't know exactly what what multi echo is. So, multi echo EPI is a modification of standard EPI for fMRI, with the main difference being acquisition of images at multiple TEs using a gradient echo readout without uh, excitations between the readouts. So in other words, you have an excitation and you acquire a, a echo planar image as fast as you can as the earliest TE, and then you acquire another one right after that, and so on and so forth, up to the number you want. Um, so in other words, you can take a regular fMRI sequence and you go into the sequence and you basically add a loop around the acquisition. And then the, the key point is the concept of TE gets a different meaning. Um, and then uh, after that, you, uh, the, reconstru the reconstruction produces multiple images per plane. Um, if it's multi-slice, multi you get multiple slices per, per shot. And then uh, you get volumes, right? So you get volumes uh, just like you do in fMRI, except you can refactor the data so that you basically have three data sets or four data sets, uh, complete space-time data sets that basically are regular fMRI data sets, except that each is a, acquired at a different contrast, right, at a different TE. And then um, those TEs actually wind up having uh, quite different properties from each other, which you can combine, if you can combine that in a strategic way, there are significant gains to be made simply because you've now acquired theoretically three times the amount of information. So you should have at least a square root of three increase in capability. Um, so that's basically what we're doing. We're trying to leverage that information, which is, you know, by the way, a type of relaxometry at the end of the day. It's basically a type of decay imaging, which is, you know, pervasive throughout, throughout MR. And, you know, as, as Peter said, he, he did this in his thesis. 
And then Peltier and Noel actually uh, made the first uh, representation of this in resting state um, by simply taking a seed and showing it's a, a T-dependent scaling. And then um, the uh, Nijmegen group actually saw that this was very important for 7T because you know, 7T have this problem of a greatly increased susceptibility artifact. So, you know, there are a number of ways to deal with that. Like the simple way is like, you know, increased resolution. Um, then you have more complicated ways, like in sequence, you can do Z-shimming and then parallel transmits another approach. Um, but it turns out that multi-echo is actually a pretty effective approach for being very inexpensive. And so by acquiring three or four or five echoes, the early echoes compensate for uh, the uh, susceptibility artifact. And with a matched filter combination, you wind up getting a full head of signal, which, you know, for lack of a better option, is pretty effective. And then, um, and then, uh, I guess uh, myself and um, uh, Peter and a number of other people in his lab came together and worked on this for a few years and uh, developed a technique called multi-echo ICA, which combines the concept of relaxometry and decomposition in one intertwined step. So you, instead of evaluating signals at a per voxel level. You evaluate them at a component level, which basically, even though individual time series reads are a bit messy, um, when you combine the information and evaluate it in a way that's spatiotemporal, you can actually leverage the spatiotemporal characteristics of the data, st the statistical characteristics of the data, with the relaxometry characteristics of the data, which allows you to do um, relatively effective uh, denoising. Right. With multi echo, I mean, the first gain is right. You can get multiple multiple time series for the price of one, essentially, almost with some trade offs. But um, and then a lot of times, I mean, I think initially, you know, my first analysis of it was simply trying to map T2 star, like, you know, do the T2 star and do the time course of T2 star. But that's kind of noisy because you're fitting a curve every single time point and then you get some sort of noisy T2 star. And so that, that doesn't really leverage the you know, the gain in signal to noise. And then Stefan Posse, you know, had, you know, sort of used the optimally combined uh, approach, which, you know, weighting based on the, uh, uh, the T2 star, the signal intensity. Um, and we can talk a little bit about that. But yeah, Prontic's approach uh, was nice in the sense that, yeah, it, it, it did ICA to sort of collapse the data or average it in a way that made sense. And then you can pull out the ICA components. But we can once again, we can talk about that more, but I don't know, Charles, if you have anything to add about your perspective. So you you kind of came into this a little bit later, but um, uh, and talking to Jonathan Power and collaborating with him, you know, Jonathan was here at the NIH for a little while, and and uh, um, you know, certainly he's the guru of uh, noise mitigation strategies, and sure. um, and he warmed up to multi echo, uh, definitely. Um, so I don't know, what's your perspective on how, how you got into it through, through Jonathan? Yeah, I mean, I, I think like as we're talking about, you know, some of these benefits, I, I, I find it useful to kind of think, to kind of disentangle the, the, the effect of the optimal combination from the denoising. In my mind, they're complementary but distinct um, benefits. And like if I was trying to pitch multi-echo fMRI multi to somebody who's never used it before, I would really emphasize what each each of those components of the of the framework buys us. You come back from the scanner after collecting your first multi-echo from my scan, like the first thing that like a naive user would be surprised by is now I have multiple time series. I'm used to just dealing with one. And what does what's useful about this? Um, and 
visually, just when you combine those echoes, it's immediately clear what it buys us. And Frantic kind of alluded to it, like, but susceptibility artifact in places that the field really cares about, like um, orbofrontal cortex, subgenual single, like these kind of areas that are near tissue interfaces, the inferior temporal cortex, other kind of deeper subcortical areas. There's just visually this pronounced effect of signal that we're reclaiming that is otherwise lost and um, you know can't be um, post hoc corrected for um, with a single echo sequence. And um, again, it, it all comes back to this idea that like signals are decaying on average at very different rates in different brain areas. And with a traditional single echo sequence, we kind of make this what kind of amounts to somewhat of an ugly compromise. We, we take this TE that's somewhere in the middle of, you know, if you think about the distribution of optimal TE time, uh, echo times um, across cortex, it's somewhat in the middle, but there are many areas where it's going to be too early and other areas where it's way too late. So um, purely just by having these multiple echoes and combining them in a, a strategic way, um, you know, one way being weighted by the, the average um, uh, T2 star, um, that, that, that already dramatically improves our, you know, bold signal sensitivity and uh, hit, really helps out with certain kinds of artifacts like susceptibility artifact. Um, so, and, 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 and from there, you know, folks can proceed as they normally would with their, their fMRI, you know, um, analysis. Like even if you're, you're squeamish about learning how to implement uh, multi-echo denoising, uh, just by having this optimally combined time series, you've already reaped a lot of benefits. And that may be a good starting point for a lot of people. Um, yeah, yeah, it's important to, I mean, I, I really think, yeah, you're, you're actually absolutely right in terms of, you know, one of the benefits, I mean, it has many benefits, but one big one that is often overlooked is that you do, yeah, I mean, every single voxel has a different T2 star and the, and the optimal echo time is equal to, I mean, given a small T2 star change, equal to the T2 star of that voxel, and that varies all over the place. And and everyone complains about, we complain, but I mean, we're, we struggle with, you know, uh, temporal poles and base of the brain and, you know, the frontal areas that are all single dropout. That's just because they have a short T2 star. And so using uh, that, using the shorter echo uh, images really, really helps. And as you showed in your papers uh, as well. Um, so, just to clarify just a little bit, um, when, when I don't know if we wanna go into too much detail, but doing optimal, so optimal combining is uh, essentially, it's essentially what? I mean, so how do you, how, how does optimally it's, combined work? It's essentially a weighted average, right? Uh, at, each, at each voxel, uh, we, we are kind of uh, averaging the values across the echoes right, which are going to be spatially aligned within a volume or within a TR. So the, the voxel and echoes one through three or through four or however many you have represents the same piece of tissue. And uh, depending on, um, you know, you can, you can average across time once the data has been spatially realigned and fit, the, you know, there's different ways to do it, but like the way that I've done it, um, I think most folks do is, you fit this mono exponential decay model, you, you get your two parameters, one reflecting, um, one only one of which is you know, really relevant for the combination, which is the, the average rate of T2 star decay. Um, and you, you can kind of plug that into the simple 
equation, which will, is, again, is essentially a weighted average. You're, 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 the, the, the echoes that are closer to the optimal TE get assigned a heavier weight than those that are further away. And in this way, we're kind of doing two things. We're kind of um, in, increasing sensitivity to the, to the signals we're interested in, but also kind of squeezing out a lot of random noise that exists in the individual echoes in, in the process too, which is advantageous. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. All right. And so, okay. So let's um, maybe, you know, on, along those lines, let's get into exactly all the things uh, that Multi Echo gives you. So, so we talked about getting rid of signal dropout. We talked a little bit about sensitivity um, in terms of motion uh, correction. I mean, the really, I think the power of Multi Echo ICA, what, what Prontic demonstrated is that, you know, not only do you increase sensitivity because you just have more images, uh, 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 but also you increase. Uh, uh, um, uh, the sensitivity to artifact because you know bold effects are T two star changes, and non bold effects don't show this echo time dependence. Now, I don't know, Prontic, if you want to get into that as far as the motion reducing motion artifacts and other you know artifactual signal changes. Sure. Yeah. So um, as Charles mentioned, the, the decay is you know a simple exponential decay that we've. Kind of seen all through our education, um, and it's it, it takes the initial intensity that's the intercept parameter of the decay. So the, as Charles said, the decay is reflective of susceptibility weighted transverse relaxation. That's the bold process. The intercept is reflective of spin density, basically. So the theory is that a, a head motion is like if you had a pixel and the tissue inside moved around, right? The tissue inside changed from one spin, basically one density to the other density. So instead of looking at it from the point of view of the entire head moving, you can think about it from a pixel level that you're, you're so the problem then of motion is the single pixel is now sampling different things at different times. Um, so so, so what, what happens is um, earlier echoes are actually spin density weighted and later echoes are T2 star weighted. So when you do that optimal combination, as Peter said, you're actually enriching the data for, for artifact. In fact, you're strengthening the, ex, the, the representation of artifact in the data and also attenuating thermal noise by an, a lot. So it makes it easier to disentangle. Um, and so uh, essentially um, that's, that's, the, that's the key step where um, you, you, have this, you have this match filter combination and now you kind of now you emphasize the different aspects of the of the data. You reduce the thermal noise, which makes a, a different data set in terms of its dimensionality. So, uh, in terms of motion, um, head motion is basically uh, a large part of it is uh, the spin density modulation due to this fact that you're you're the tissue you're sampling is moving over time, and so you can the it, it turns out that uh, that effect is. Uh, sparse, right? It's a it's a spatially sparse process, which is why ICA can find it. We can talk about sparsity later, but um, you, but uh, essentially that's what makes it distinguishable from other things. It's it's um, it's statistically it is distinct, and so if it's distinct, you can you can decode it or you can um, you can extract it, and once you extract it, you can identify it as a as a spin density modulation. It's quite specific to the S the S not spin density modulation. So it makes it pretty unambiguous, unambiguous to re remove. And that's the other nice thing. Like this, this approach is actually 
um, of expressing motion as a spin density modulation and then removing it is actually very robust. Proper head motion is very uh, uh, S not weighted. It, it, in fact, and there are there are joint components like there's some shared components, but they're very they're much smaller than the uh, major S not weighted components. So it works very well. Yeah, and I and and we might get into talking more about uh, you know using ICA, but uh, before we do that, also it seems that um, okay, so so motion increasing sensitivity, signal dropout. And especially like even, you know, we found it was useful for uh, even looking at the base of the brain where things pulsate all over the place. Even if the brain doesn't move, there's pulsation. And, you know, that sort of falls out as an ICA component that, you know, doesn't show equitime dependence, but it shows, you know, S not changes. And so that you can easily look at base of the brain structures more uh, as well. But one other thing too, uh, and this is some work by Jen Evans uh, in our group, uh, looked at, um, the making so one one problem with fMRI is if you have paradigms that you know inject something very slowly or look at slow changes uh, you have lots of baseline drifts and that's why people actually do on off on off on off just to get rid of that you know separate the baseline drift from the task but it seems that with with multi echo also uh, that falls out because it's also a data t two star uh, uh, um, dependent signal and so you can get rid of baseline drifts pretty easily as well. And project it's, really, it's really interesting because it turns out that we think about drift in the time domain, but it turns out it has a spatial fingerprint. It is spatially distinct as well, which makes it suitable to sparsity. So you can actually, you could pull that out as a, as a spatial map with a corresponding time series that's really slow. And it, you know, this is an aspect of the data of, of the approach that's not sufficiently utilized. This means you can have essentially any experimental paradigm you want. And we found with Jen Evans' papers, you can have smooth increases and decreases, smooth modulations of your task effect over time. You can have, you can have very long blocks, you can have short blocks. This makes com uh, continuous performance tasks much, much easier. Um, and uh, just to give you an example of how important this is, the recent paper by Lee and Jasonoff in Nature where they uh, the title local and global consequences of reward evoked striatal dopamine response. They found that um, they combined electrophysiology with a strategy of dopamine agonism and antagonism. So they basically found that the striatal dopamine response that was a slow curve over 120 seconds. It's an extremely slow neural response, rather um, let's say uh, phasic uh, response to dopamine, and this would have just not been possible with um, uh, a single echo approach where you have to detrend. There's no other information to do it. So there's a lot of, of science that this, that, that this opens up, I believe. And over the next few years, I think we'll see more of this. So, so Charles, I, so you talked uh, a little bit also in your collaboration with uh, uh, Jonathan Power as well. Um, and this is, so this is a potential issue that is and multi-echo, you know, we're still struggling with to some degree, uh, and that is respiration, uh, because um, you know there's certainly parts of, you know, respiration is also like, you know, so to me there's two ways that respiration manifests itself mostly, and that's you know chest cavity moving, which causes susceptibility changes, which might look like motion a little bit, but in that you can get rid of a little bit, uh, but also you know entitled CO2 changes causing these glow slow, you know, flow changes that might re result in oxygenation changes. Uh, is that, so uh, what, what are the, 
maybe what are the limits of multi-echo and dealing with that and what might uh, benefit that? And, and I, I even have my ideas on, on how you might even be able to use multi-echo to, to further get rid of that. And I'm sure Project does, but Charles, I'm kind of curious your perspective on that. Yeah, in, in, in my hands and in our data that we've looked at um, where we have respiratory and you know, other physiological traces that you know, accompany um, you know, these really long scans where you know, we kind of capture spontaneous um, breathing events, like you know, think of anyone who's ever been scanned uh, knows what the experience is like. There's a lot of uh, sometimes sighing and maybe yawning that occurs, you know, even if you try your best to you know, stay alert and still. Um, so it, when, when you look at these, these kind of epics in time where it, like these respiratory events happen, there's kind of multiple things happening and different kinds of signals that um, um, are kind of contributing to the variance in the fMRI signal, some of which we generally want to keep and some of which we're probably not interested in and want to remove. Um, usually when people uh, sigh or take a deep breath, they move their head, which has an immediate kind of impact on the fMRI signal, like a very focal, spatially specific artifact. Uh, and uh, from my perspective, multi-echo noising is unequivocally very good at removing this type of signature. This is, this is a, uh, like a kind of classic head movement signature that uh, it will remove from the data. What, what I find that it, uh, or what we find, it's not so effective at removing, um, and in part because it's, it's because the algorithms are working the way they're designed to, is that, that latter component you were referring to, this kind of T2 star weighted blood flow effect related to the change in CO2 in the blood. Um, uh, and uh, you know, uh, sometimes these these kind of global signal modulations related again to these blood flow changes are are quite dramatic and can have a really strong impact on things like the correlation structure of the data. Generally speaking, in a very distant, independent manner, it will elevate correlations because everything in the brain is kind of waxing and waning at the same time. Um, so that, that part to me, um, everything I just kind of said is, is uh, in my mind, is pretty clear. What's less clear is what to do with these signals um, and how, like, you know, they are, they are bold weighted, they are T dependent. So they kind of fall into this pile of signals that traditionally we would call signals of interest. Um, but I, you know, in my mind, I'm not particularly interested in them. I want to remove them somehow. Uh, we usually use global signal regression or something like it, like regression of the, you know, the gray matter, the cortical ribbon. Um, it definitely uh, removes those, those big signal decreases I was just describing, but it's unclear what else it's removing. Um, you know, and I think that's people that object to uh, global signal regression. I think that's, that's their fear um, is, you know, you, you may be removing this blood flow effect, but what else are you removing? And I think that's an open question. Yeah. Yeah, we should have a, you know, as I've been looking at this, and I realized we should have a podcast on global signal regression. It's uh, sure. <laughs> an open question. I think that everyone under, you know, most people, most people in the field know, you know, the trade-offs, and they know the benefits, they know that they know, and it's just different people are comfortable on different sides of, of that trade-off. But, uh, but we're not going to get too much into global signal sure. regression. It's a, sure. it's an ongoing debate, and and uh, but actually that would be a good podcast. I have to note that. Um, but I I've actually you know Prantik, you've and without getting into too much detail, um, you know we looked at you know uh, respiration effects. You know the the slow ones. Yeah. Um, 
And, and, and you, you know, you've been thinking a lot about how to even identify it, you know, as some combination of, you know, looking at the, the ICA components or, or trying to identify it in the multi-echo ICA data as, as artifactual separate from the true bold data. And, you know, I often think, okay, looking at that, you can also look at, you know, the, the respiration response function is slow, is a little bit slower than activation. So you might be able to use that, or you might be able to use the, you know, spatial template of like the size of, of, of the effect or the spatial extent. So Project, I don't know if you want to talk a little yeah. bit about that. Well, I think just experimentally, it's important to note, always collect physiological data if you can, right? Um, just on principle. Um, and so yes, it is actually, this is a problematic source of variance. Um, because there is coupling, right? So uh, in, in, variations in end tidal CO2 causes, cause changes in vasodilation. So this, there are intrinsic changes in CSF and, and CBV. Um, that is interesting. It's actually, that response is, is at a microscopic level different than the response that bold signal drives. And in fact, um, what we find in um, the multi-echo analyses we have two metrics that we gauge the data by at a high level. One is called kappa, which is the overall bold weighting, and the other is called rho, which is the overall spin density weighting. Those components are not, they have a higher um, uh, rho value than their, than their bold counterparts. counterparts. That's important to know. Um, so there, I think there is information. It's obviously subtle, right? Because they're, they're not, they're, they're very closely related. But um, so in terms of dealing with it, now, there's, a, there's a few thoughts. First of all, um, spatially, a, a, a place that this manifests really strongly is in the draining veins and in the circle of Willis. So you can actually, like, effective vasodilation and changes in CO2 load, um, you, it's, it's actually a very prominent component. It explains a ton of variance. In fact, usually more disproportionate amount of variance for the amount of bold weighting it has. So there are definitely giveaways there. Um, the question is, you know how do you how do you write how do you make a, a, a criteria to remove it? So my approach for the whole thing has been don't use spatial templates because you then restrict it to a particular anatomy. Like multi-echo has been very successfully been used in rodent and, and uh, rat and mouse work. That's because it's agnostic to the anatomy. Um, that being said, you know I think this is an area of further analysis. Katie Chang has re recently uh, published on a, a deep learning method where. She identified uh, key points, key areas of brain to sample to identify this respiration-related variation. But I guess we'll get into it. It's important to still disentangle respiration from what we call global signal. Uh, because global signal is, um, I won't say not well understood, it's many things. And um, uh, you can have uh, you know, like large signal decreases that Charles referred to. Um, there, there's a lot, there's very interesting effects going on there. One of them is you actually lose T, you lose T2 equilibration. You, you lose that T1 equilibration that you, you wait several seconds for to achieve in the beginning of an experiment. It takes some time. So when you move, it's the same thing. You've come, yeah. it's like, it's like, a, it's like taking a bowling ball and running it through a bunch of bowling pins. You've just completely scattered uh, defasing. And when it defases, you lose signal. Right? That's just what happens. And so, and it's a slow loss. It's a, it's, a, it's a slowish loss and a slow recovery. So it's actually this negative deflection. And again, it's very strong and it's completely pervasive. And in fact, you see it in the bold signal because it's true that you are seeing less signal 
that's actually it, you're not seeing a bold process per se. You're seeing just literally less signal related to T2 star relaxation because the effect is destroyed temporarily. That's one aspect of it. Um, respiration, uh, the movement associated with respiration can definitely be associated with this. Um, but uh, yeah, I think the jury is out there in terms of how to best identify this. It is a difficult problem. I think there are ways to do it because it's, it, is, it is at some level distinguishable from neural, neurally related bold. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that your point that you brought up with uh, Roe, I think that you know, with you have a global flow change, you might have a little bit more inflow effect yeah. uh, than, than if with just a localized activation. So that might, you know, there might be some method for pulling that out. You know, we're looking at this as, I mean, it's a big problem. I mean, you know, I, I think Katie is making some progress. You know, you, things like retro ICOR, for instance, work pretty well, but they don't really, uh, really solve it. Um, I think it's solvable. I actually think that, uh, you know, what, another strategy that we're just starting to try uh, is, you know, just identifying, you know, doing, you know, using the, the philosophy of like cross run cor correlation and having subjects just breathing a certain rate that's fixed and then doing the cross run correlation to see all the areas that show correlation. Because I think that there's different signatures depending on the part of the brain of what respiration is. And the reason why regressing it out doesn't work is because there's so many different signatures. Um, so uh, anyway, but that's, but respiration is an ongoing problem in all of fMRI and multi-echo maybe has an avenue towards maybe getting at it a little bit better, but it's, that's once again, that's not, that's not uh, something that it, it solves, but, uh, but let's get into, let's just um, maybe get into talking a little bit about the trade-offs. So, you know, people might argue, oh, well, uh, you know, I have to do lower resolution with multi-echo or I have to give up uh, coverage or, or temporal resolution. Uh, a lot of that has been solved with like multi-band and, and things like that. I don't know, Charles, if you wanted to mention a little bit about uh, that. Uh, sure, I mean, I, I think uh, one, one of the challenges with, with multi-echo from like setting up you know, you're, you're, you're beginning a study and you want to set up a, a multi-echo fMRI sequence, you're intrigued by some of the things we're talking about, is the parameter space is even larger than a traditional scan. Like you have things like the, the number of echoes and um, the echo times themselves and so on. And, and all of these things incur a trade-off. And, uh, you know, if you want to have more echoes, you're, you're going to maybe have a longer um, TR um, and potentially larger voxels and or less coverage. So I think you know, it, the, the, the experimental questions at hand probably need to govern uh, some of these decisions and uh, dictate what kinds of trade-offs we're willing to tolerate. You know, I think in most um, contexts, at least the ones that you know, we think about in our group a lot, the ability to control for artifacts um, and, you know, reduce certain kinds of artifacts and brain areas we're very interested in outweighs the need for maybe a few millimeters, um, infractions of a millimeter spatial resolution or, you know, temporal resolution. Um, but I can imagine scenarios where some of these things could be really, really important for, you know, a particular um, kind of research. So um, there, there definitely are trade-offs and. Uh, yeah. And it's not really, I mean, at least in terms of, TR, uh, you know, really realistically, the signal disappears at about 100 milliseconds anyway. So it's not like you're really 
you know, making a big compromise, you might collect five images as quickly as possible. And you might have a little bit of a cut in, in, in spatial resolution, but, um, but eventually you just can't keep on collecting. It'd be great if you could, but... Um, uh, uh, there, there are a few scenarios, just to be clear, that it's not appropriate for. So it's not, if you're doing layer dependent stuff where you need, where your experiment is very controlled, that you're doing slab imaging and you have very complex stimuli like um, uh, uh, Nico's word, um, where, uh, where you're doing temporal cortex decoding, that's, that's, not the, that's not the ideal case because those are highly controlled experiments. So, and if you, if you know what you're doing, a regular fMRI experiment is sufficiently robust and the, the what you know multi-echo solves the problem or seeks to solve the problem of in practical in in like you know in the 80 percent of experiments condition um how do you improve that how do you improve this overwhelming effect of artifact you know through through, through our analyses we basically conclude that 75 percent of the non-thermal variance is artifact like a quarter only a quarter of the signal is pulled um and so uh so it's it's it you know you you uh, like Charles said there there are significant benefits if you think about it from a clinical point of view, from a throughput point of view like how many you know how big your data sets can get and how how good of a data set you can get out of a otherwise difficult experiment. Um, regarding uh, trade offs, um, your uh, the multiband work has been really effective at reducing TR. So for example, at Sinai. We were able to get like three, three-ish millimeter voxels with um, a, a TR of less than a second, like about 880 milliseconds, which is fantastic. That's whole um, brain. That's whole brain. That's whole brain. That's whole brain. And so it's achievable. And that was on a that was on a um, uh, not a Skyro, right? That wasn't even on the Prisma. Um, so that's important. And then with, with regard to spatial resolution, this is more complicated than I think it's been discussed. So, it, because it's an interaction of what the data are and how you process it. So, if you acquire data at, let's say, one and a half millimeter, then you apply a five millimeter smoothing kernel. What's the point, right? right? Because you just destroyed that information. Um, in contrast, if you and the thing is, when you acquire a very small voxel size, there is a there is a necessary unavoidable loss in SNR. Right, because now the data become much more thermal noise dominant, and so you you see fewer things in time, even though you technically see more anatomy. However, it's important to remember that fMRI is a signal that's carried in time, so that the temporal sensitivity is really important, and that is lost possibly needlessly with 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 chasing spatial resolution in a in a way that's not thought out. And then one other, I think, very important aspect of multi echo data is the the denoising is is sufficiently effective for a number of important reasons that uh, you don't need to apply smoothing um, in order to get significant effects. And we found this in the paper with Mike Lombardo, myself and several others, where uh, we did a power analysis, formal power analysis of two paradigms. And not only did we find that you need half the number of subjects to achieve 80% power given a particular uh, effect in a different particular part of the brain, uh, you also find that smoothing after you do your analysis, this a, a smooth data, the output of a smooth data set looks almost similar to a output from a multi-echo denoise data set. The, the, except the difference is very interesting. So that means that the, the difference is in the in the um, in the smooth data, uh, you have a big point spread function. 
right? So any given a given a single punctate event, an entire neighborhood lights up. Whereas in in multi-echo data, before you smooth, if you see a punctate effect, it's a punctate effect, and except you you suffer uh, reconstruction related, you know, smoothness issues. Um, but there's a there's a very important consequence with multiple comparisons analysis because and uh, with uh, when you're doing cluster level analysis, your your point spread function determines how big a region you can find. So let's say you're going after some nucleus in the thalamus, and that's like you know maybe three four millimeters across, and you acquire two millimeter data to try to get to it, and you smooth it with five millimeter. Even if you saw the effect. Statistically, you are not no, you're no longer allowed to, to to claim it because it is it is below the point spread function. Any any random pixel would have an effect that size. However, with multi echo data, if you don't smooth, more principally, if you don't smooth, you just you just let yourself um, uh, find activations from a much greater number of regions, small regions, which are actually very important in disease. So um, it, it the issue is more complicated than than the spatial resolution is more complicated as a trade-off or as a, as a goal as as people think. So um, so then if you have slightly larger voxels, you get a lot bigger SNR, which is really important depending on what you're doing. Yeah, yeah, and and certainly you can have slightly larger voxels and and you know have, with your shorter echo time, you don't have to worry. You know, a lot of people go to high resolution just to reduce the signal dropout, but you don't have to. You know, with right. multiple echo, short echoes. Exactly. You have lots of signal, and that, yeah, Charles. In your paper uh, that you had, improving precision functional mapping routines in multi-echo fMRI and current opinion behavioral sciences. I mean, also the other one on rapid precision functional mapping, and uh, uh, as well, you you know, you have an effect size increase of you know from twenty four percent to fifty percent in regions of signal dropout, and also like ten minutes of multi-echo is equivalent to thirty minutes, or, or ten minutes of yeah, multi-echo is equivalent to thirty minutes of. Of, of single echo. So that's pretty, you know, those are those numbers, uh, you know, people can, you know, easily understand that that's a significant gain. Um, and that, and, and we're always, and this is, maybe we'll get into this in a second here, but, uh, you know, we're trying to do individual subjects. We're trying to understand uh, differences between individuals. And people feel it's, you know, the replication problem is, is too significant. This feels like it, is a significant, uh, you know, gain that might push us over into being able to do individual subjects. I don't know if you wanted to talk a little bit about that, but yeah, I mean, I, you know, I I'm convinced of this, uh, and I, I hope as more people like acquire and kind of you know get their hands on this kind of data, they will be too. I mean, going back a little bit to what Prentik was talking about with the need or lack of need potentially for um, spatial smoothing. I mean, when I when I first, you know, one of the ways I like to interact with my data when I'm kind of familiarizing myself and like building my intuition about the correlation structure and the data like for a given person is, you know, uh, Connectome Workbench, which is this visualization uh, tool that the Connectome project put out has this feature where you can load the data and kind of, you know, drop seeds in different brain regions to get a, a functional connectivity map, like a seed map in real time. And when I did that with this data for the, you know, the first time I'd collected it, I had thought like I mistakenly applied spatial smoothing, like overt spatial smoothing um, uh, already, whereas that wasn't the case. It, it, it just looks qualitatively different from um, uh, kind of traditional kinds of sequences. Um, and one of those things is just, you know, this, the again, like this kind of uh, thermal nose, no, noise 
component, which is so dominant in a lot of this, the multi-band single echo scans that we people are collecting. Um, so yeah, yeah, I think you know it 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 really removes a lot of sources of noise that are present in single subject data sets um, that kind of will make it easier, hopefully, for these kinds of um, these kind of n of one applications. Um, but I, I also think it's important, like, like to while there are significant benefits to kind of be cognizant of it, it's not like a magic wand. Like you, you can't just stick somebody in a scanner and not give them, you know, instructions about staying. Like there, there's steps we can take, but at the acquisitions um, step to remove our uh, prevent artifacts from happening in the first place. You know, it shouldn't the, we shouldn't emphasize just the post-hoc things we can do. Um, like there's really cool work being done with um, uh, like real-time motion detection, as well as like more elegant physical head constraints that you know may um, in, used in with in combination of multi-echo fMRI may kind of be the kind of the multi-pronged approach that we need to get more um, useful single subject uh, information. Um, so that, that's kind of my thought process on it. Yeah. 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 And and so so okay. So now you know, as we go along, you know, we think okay. So this is a, you know we're, we're for the past you know half hour or so we've been saying pretty obvious stuff. I mean, not really, you know, incredible. I mean, that you'd think that by now, I mean, it's been around for 20 years. It's probably been, you know, really worked on for the last 10. Uh, why isn't it everywhere? Um, and, and I'm, you know, it's not just trying to promote it. I, you know, I personally don't care, but I mean, I care about it because I think it's a better technique. So why, why do you think it hasn't been disseminated? I mean, I, uh, I have some of my own reason uh, thoughts on that, but I'm kind of curious why why you feel. I mean, I think even in your paper, uh, Charles, that you you mentioned what is it? Some less than like one percent of all the studies yeah. are, are using Malzaco. Um, and there's some people actually who who really you know would prefer, like for instance, the Connectome project. I remember having a long discussion with with them, and they're like, "Well, we prefer short TR because you can mm -hmm. maybe characterize more of the you know the high frequency noise and get rid of that better." Uh, and you know, sure, that's that's true. Um, but but I do think that you know, I I I think there's benefits to each, but I think multi-echo simply uh, maybe outweighs that. But um, so, what are your thoughts on why it's not disseminated more? Why why people aren't using it? I I, I remember hearing about multi-echo from Rye during my graduate training at various points. You know, so you know, and I didn't jump on you know, on the bandwagon then. It, I think we, you know, when we think about like early stages in our training as, you know, brain scientists using neuroimaging, we kind of just adopt whatever the lab we're in uh, is doing. And we kind of carry that processing pipeline and, you know, potential biases about how we process and think about our data with us through, through at least, you know, the early parts of our career. And uh, it, it, there may be a little bit of a lag, right? Like as now that we have more papers coming out showing the benefits of this technique, more people may just kind of slowly adopt them. So, uh, and and you know, it's also probably important that kind of validated and publicly available software for processing and analyzing this kind of data um, is is modified to um, to handle multi-echo from my data. Like there are special considerations that one needs to take when doing like basic pre-processing steps that current packages um, don't allow for. And then the denoising is a whole nother element. Um, and there's, you know, folks on your team and elsewhere that are like actively working on, you know, um, uh, toolboxes that enable multi-echo denoising. Um, 
So I, I, I think that those are probably the two, um, the, the two kind of factors in my mind, like uncertainty about how to acquire and analyze it just because you're used to doing uh, things one way and then um, you know, the, the, the availability of tools and software to analyze it. Yeah, I think um, you know it's it's a it's a, it's an important problem, and it's not you know dissemination and and there is there are challenges technically speaking. So from a just an enablement factor, um, practically whole brain multi echo imaging is not possible without in plane acceleration, because without in plane acceleration, your echo times are just way too long. So you, you can't even get two echoes without the signal completely. Um, Defasing, so in-plane acceleration has been very important. Just as an aside, yes, in-plane acceleration produces artifacts, but these are also spatially sparse and can be removed in the in the denoising. So that's actually a really interesting, you know, phenomenon. Um, so I think you know, and the parameter space issue that Charles Charles referred to is is a problem. I think one way this could be solved is with the vendors, because if the vendors can understand that this is solving many of the problems that their customers want, then they could potentially have a, pro a protocol or a series that just has the right set of parameters that are reasonable based on the literature. Now there's a lot of literature covering this. And so from an acquisition point of view, there could be, you know, there could be an option. And I think GE has looked into this. Um, they actually had a group uh, led by Alex Cohen uh, that actually published a number of papers actually combining multi-echo with ASL. Um, the Philips, I think, supports this out of the box, and uh, Siemens supports it through the human connectome protocol, where it's now a feature. Um, still, making it a, making it turnkey is not done, but and this is one of the few things where you could make a turnkey. It, there's, it's completely feasible to make a turnkey because, it, it you know, the turnkey approach will have certain drawbacks, but it you know, on the other side, you'll it'll have just widespread availability. The other aspect of it is the software, and I think. Um, you know, the, the multi-echo ICA package has, to my, to my surprise and, and to my gratitude, has been used by a lot of people um, in very high impact papers uh, and, and for large, large numbers of data sets. That's great. Um, when I went to Hyperfine, I think some of the maintenance of that fell to the NIH group. And um, uh, the, uh, another group that was actually led by Elizabeth Dupre at MNI uh, has, have developed the, the TEDNA package, which basically took our code and refactored it into something that can be much more easily engineered than what I had. So we are, the, the, my, my approach, which is mica.py, it's an AFNI, you can get it on GitHub. Um, it's still available and I think it's still, it's still a reference. It's still, its performance is still a reference, but um, uh, there are significant efforts to make the software um, much easier to use. Um, that's one of the that's one of the goals of, of Serotype to, is to produce a service to help with this. Um, but the vendors really, I think they can gain a lot by offer, by producing a, uh, a, a you know protocol for this and making it easier for people. Yeah, yeah. So you both touched on uh, right some some important points. One is that uh, yeah nobody you know people aren't really familiar exactly with the. Uh, you know, what the optimal parameters are and, and then how to process it. And if there's no standard packages, people generally don't, don't use it as much. And actually, so right, I mean, I think uh, it's a larger discussion in terms of researchers' interaction with vendors. Um, you know, vendors are, are generally focused on clinical markets and, you know, multi-echo right now, I mean, 
is not really, a, you know, it's not part of a clinical market, the research market, they only spend a little bit of attention on if multi-echo, for instance, if it resulted in getting a biomarker or something and it opened up a clinical market, suddenly, you know, suddenly you would have a very optimized multi-echo sequence on every single one of your uh, scan <laughs> scanners. Right now it's, yeah, and that, I think that is a big problem. I think actually, um, you know, right now, you know, Siemens has some sequences like WIPs that, you know, if you have a research agreement, you can get it. Uh, GE, like Prontic mentioned, has paid some attention to it. They pay it attention to it, but they, they do enough and it's just enough, um, but they could always do more. Um, so yeah, I definitely feel like, uh, and that's part of the problem. A lot of people just, you know, don't have research agreements and they're like, well, how do we get the sequence? We don't even have the sequence. Um, the other thing too, so right, so with processing, there is, uh, it's still kind of open-ended. I mean, kind of like fMRI was in the early days. I mean, nobody knows exactly how to process it. And certainly there's Tadena that's, you know, they tried, they're, they're taking a lot of what Prontic did and with other people, you, you know, giving options on optimally combined versus multi-echo ICA. Prontic has this program in AFNI. Um, uh, fMRI Prep uh, has a pipeline for doing multi-echo. Um, and yeah, and I think that, right, people still don't know exactly you know, the best thing to do, there's, you know, it'll grow, it'll grow. Um, but hopefully, I think the key thing is having, you know, on every single scanner, being able to press a button and say, you can do, multi, you know, this is multi-echo. So regarding like the, 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 the parameters, I mean, uh, we covered a little bit of, you know, and, and Project brought up a good point in terms of uh, multi-band being absolutely necessary for whole brain. And I agree with that. Um, what about, Number of echoes. I mean, people ask, "Oh, how many echoes is enough?" And and I usually say as many as you can do. Um, but that's not really an answer. I mean, I, I think that uh, you know, is three not enough? Is two enough? I mean, is five too many? Uh, um, yeah. It's, what what are your thoughts on that uh, in terms of number of echoes? <laughs> Charles, you want to go for it? Uh, you want me to this one? Yeah, I, I'd say uh, the you know three is the minimum for a lot of the I, I believe for like, you know, Micah or Tadana to, to do the denoising. So that's your starting point. Uh, you know, the, we, we collected five echoes at one point. We've kind of now backtracked and we have a four echo sequence that um, with less acceleration that we, we are happy with. Um, I, again, it comes back to this huge parameter space. You know, to, to really answer this question, you might need to do some course exploration of it and, and, and you know, um, and the other thing I guess I'll say with respect to the number of echoes, a complementary piece of that is the echo times themselves, right? Like uh, having four echoes spanning some reasonable range of, uh, you know, say 10 milliseconds to 60 roughly is very different than, you know, 20 to 90 or, you know, so it's not just the, the, the number of echoes, but also just uh, sampling the relevant um, timeframe. Um, uh, that's it's also important. Um, in terms of number of echoes, uh, three is very effective. You know, three gets a lot done. Um, what we've seen is one big difference between three and, and five is at five echoes, you get a very nice TT star map. Um, at three echoes, it's a little bit give or take because, you know, it's it's a little bit more sensitive to artifact because you have less, less averaging. Um, uh, so 
but you know, it, uh, if you go too high in echo number, you would probably have to increase your in-plane acceleration to grab a three or sense uh, three factors. So that might not be worth it. You have to, that, that, as Charles said, you have to kind of evaluate your experiment. However, three, if you have no other options, three is fine. It's fine for basic denoising. It's quite feasible. Uh, it only needs uh, two-fold in-plane in acceleration, which pretty much all scanners have now. I do want to say one more thing regarding uh, vendors and motivation. There are a number of papers now um, that are coming out in the last two years that have shown really critical uh, pharmacological findings using this sequence. There have been papers on in anesthesia showing the mechanism of anesthesia affecting the reticular activating system directly. Uh, psilocybin, ketamine, neuropeptides like oxytocin, even immune modulators from Neil Harrison's group at, uh, at uh, Sussex. So, you know, this is important, right? Uh, because it's, it, it is again opening the possibility of, a, you know, a, a kind of turnkey sequence. And maybe within, you know, we haven't found biomarkers in psychiatry, but it's because the signal has been so bad. And so now we have this new phase of much better signal. And so, hey, maybe a biomarker is possible or in combination with smart nonlinear techniques like deep learning or whatever, you can come up with a strategy that could detect a biomarker. And, and, you know, but it's a, it's a chicken and egg problem with the event, you know, we, you know, we need to make it somewhat easy to, for people to acquire this data. And I think there's a, there's a role that uh, software people have to play. And we're, you know, I think a number of people are doing a great job. And if we got a little bit of buy-in from the hardware community, I think we can make a big impact, even in, in pharmacodynamics and drug discovery and a lot drug application and efficacy and all this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree. And, and, and I think you're right. I think vendors, are paying attention. It's just a matter of uh, right. And then what you brought up was was great. I think in terms of it doesn't just have to be a a, a biomarker for a psychiatric illness. It could be other effects that that could open up the clinical market. And it, it and it really and it should be emphasized. It's not just another you know. It's not just another technique that sort of improves things incrementally. It's sort of it's it feels a little bit more like something that can truly transform things in in some regard. And so. Uh, and also, it's funny talking about number of echoes. I, uh, I, I remember some discussion of you know trying to do spiral scans. So you can get like a shorter echo time. Uh, you know, you can get almost a, a two millisecond echo time. Uh, uh, I don't know if that's a benefit or not. I mean, it might be you know worth going to spiral or partial Fourier and you know sort of encoding or things like that. But um, but anyway, those are ongoing research issues. Uh, I always like to get as close to a zero echo time as possible, so I can really estimate that uh, intercept. But uh, um, but it's not always necessary. Uh, so let's actually so as we sort of start to get towards the the end of this discussion here. So let's maybe talk about um, uh, the number of unique. I mean, Prontic touched up upon it, like the the applications of this. I mean, certainly um, it helps. You know. Uh, increase the reliability of a lot of studies, but is there any, is there, are there any specific applications that you think are, are uh, you know, that really benefit from this uh, that might be uh, game-changing in that regard? Yeah, I'll, say, I'll just say briefly, I mean, like the reliability was one that, you know, we've thought about a lot uh, as it pertains to like, you know, biomarker development. And I was talking a little bit before about our interest in identifying like personalized targets for stimulation interventions. The other, the other piece, where I could see it being um, multi-echo from, right, from a, like a clinical research perspective being very useful is tracking um, things like disease progression. Like we, we're doing a lot of work um, in our lab um, 
uh, imaging, longitudinal imaging of psychiatric illnesses that are episodic, like mood disorders. Like, you know, we, we were, we're scanning people every week over the course of, it's been almost two years now. And, you know, the kind of other side of the coin to having better reliability by virtue of reducing artificial, artifactual variants in these scans is that it should uh, theoretically uh, increase sensitivity to signals of interest that are co-varying with you know, clinical variables that, that, we're, that we're interested in. That, that's kind of implicit in the point that I think the, the Lombardo paper was making about improving effect size estimation with smaller samples. Uh, so uh, I, I think that's one area. So like, you know, tracking response to treatments or disease progression, um, in, you know, uh, by virtue again of reducing um, artifactual signals that may be covariating co with these things that we're, we're trying to understand. Like, for example, people may move less in the scanner when they respond positively to a, a drug or a, you know a, a, a treatment so we, we want to kind of disentangle these different different things better yeah yeah i think another important area is neurodevelopment because um, there are dramatic changes in brain anatomy tissue structure between you know everywhere from in utero to to aging right um so uh I just want to highlight a couple of interesting studies. Um, uh, uh, Mariah Thomason at NYU, she's actually using multi-echo for fetal imaging. And so one of the really interesting things that we find there is the fetal brain has a very late peak TE. It's like 80 or 100 milliseconds because it's so highly perfused. Like the, 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 the in utero brain is so highly, it's just, it's something that's really interesting. Um, and but what we showed with um, in, in, the, in our paper in Journal of Neuroscience in 2018 is there's a really, really, really important change that change with with uh, age, and that's the dimensionality of the data, also known as the number of components. At at, at an eight year old has between you know 60 and 100 distinguished bold components, which drops to about 20 or 30 at age 30. And uh, so we, we plotted that. We actually found that it felt very closely followed an exponential decay in terms of the number of uh, components at, versus age. And at the regional level, it's even more pronounced. I mean, some, some, of, the, some of the decays that we saw was, were just falling along the line. So- um, That's an important point, Prantik. I just have to interrupt you there. I mean, that's a really important point in terms of that you could objectively come up with the ICA components um, uh, in sort of a principled way, as opposed to, you know, if you just do single echo, number of ICA components is how many you decide you want to look for. But, but with multi-echo, your processing method, it's sort of picks- It's a biological variable. It's now. a biological variable that, that you're able to discern that, and you've shown that uh, uh, reduces with, as, as with development, yeah. Yeah. And just a couple of more notes there. Um, Nathan Spring just published in Cerebral Cortex an expansion of, of the 2018 work where the 2018 work covered like eight, age eight to eight, four, age 40. He's covered from age, I think, 30 to age 80. And he's identified that if the, the decrease in the number of components or dimensionality follows the same curve. He's actually reproduced the exponential curve on the tail. Um, so it's, uh, it's those do, I think that area of work is very important. And just in terms of like other areas where multi-echo can benefit, um, I want to highlight Valerie Voons and Laurel Morris's work at 3T and 7T, where they're looking at in a number of conditions in, in addiction and OCD, um, uh, striatal, basically striatum, um, uh, the 
uh, ventral, the dorsal striatum, subgenial cingulate. Um, they have, uh, there's a whole bunch of psychiatric and you know, neuropsychiatric conditions that this is sensitive to, especially involving small uh, subcortical nuclei. So that's another major area. Uh, and also, just to mention, also uh, uh, Ahmad Hariri, you know, who wrote wrote a pretty a paper that was you know taken by you know the popular media and also a lot of people saying, oh, there's a problem with uh, uh, replicability uh, and reproducibility of fMRI. It's a it's a real problem. But he also wrote. I mean, he also you know in even in that paper and also elsewhere, he he's a huge proponent of using multi echo to fix that problem. And, and they don't really as much emphasize that point is that he feels that multi-echo can actually, you know, if not completely solve it, at least contribute significantly towards, towards solving uh, the issue of replicability. So um, among other things like, you know, sharing data and sharing code and things like that. But um, so, yeah, so uh, uh, I don't know, Pratik, did that paper that you were working on, I don't know if that was ever published I think it was. I mean, that you were working with uh, the NIH people on on one were showing the components, um, uh, uh, the ICA components being reduced with with age, or is that with yeah, that, that was the one that was published in J Neuroscience. J Neuroscience. Okay. Okay. Great. Um, so okay. So uh, yeah, as far as the ultimate clinical uh, utility. So we we talked. I mean, obviously, we don't really want necessarily have to go into. Uh, you know the, the the challenges of of finding biomarkers. I mean, there's you need a large N, and you need, but not only do you need a large N and a real effect size, but you need to be able to scan then an individual and have enough sensitivity. And how long of a scan do you, do you think that that's doable in a typical scan session? For let's say you can imagine a clinical scenario ten years from now or twenty years from now, where you have a biomarker and you want to see if a subject matches that can you you know with multi-echo do you think that there's enough sensitivity to put them in a scanner within an hour be able to say something uh, about the subject it's is it close to that sensitivity i think it's within our it's within reason i mean we like you know we we have patients that we scan with multi-echo fmri scans we have usually an hour time slot and in that period of time we get 30 minutes of resting state fMRI, usually two 15-minute runs, and then all the anatomicals we need for the you know other aspects of the processing. And if we do that um, multiple times, which we have in the same patients, we we can look at if we're interested in functional activity, for example, we can we can look at the correlation structure in that person's brain, uh, and we get very similar results. Uh, uh, in, you know, in terms of it being a stable and reliable representation of their brain that distinguishes them from other, you know, individuals. Uh, so the extent to which a biomarker that would ultimately be found, uh, you know, is based on something like that, I, I think it, that's a very promising thing to see. Um, but it, I guess it, I guess it would depend on what what the biomarker actually is. It might not it might not be connectivity related. It might be something um, more subtle. It, may, it might be something structural. You know. Or some combination, right? Uh, yeah, and it might also be task related, right? Yeah. So um, it could be that the driver um, does expose a, uh, something that's more of a biomarker, um, and so uh, yeah, I, I think I think that's that's an important point. Yeah, I mean, and and yeah, I'm just trying to think that it does seem that 
I mean, it's really an interesting nonlinear, you know, uh, set of constraints. I mean, you have, you know, we have our scan session, and which is like an hour, and then as realistically, you have thirty minutes in which you can actually collect data, and and it does seem that it's that because of the sensitivity increase that that 30 minutes is you is so much more valuable. It seems that there's something, it's not just like an incremental, like things are a little bit better. It's like, oh, well now we see something as opposed to before we, we didn't. And, and yeah, I mean, I, 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 I don't quite have the data to, to really say that definitively, but it, it does seem like that's the in indication at least from your papers, Charles, as well. I mean, just looking at those maps, it's pretty convincing to me uh, that uh, the quality of the maps that you get with Multiaco, either using seed voxel or, or whatever, uh, are it's it's like night and day. Just looking at the two, I think I think I think that's true. I think it's also important to emphasize it is a somewhat region specific effect. Some of those effects we're highlighting in those papers are in a subset of brain areas where the effect is really pronounced. Um, in other areas, you know, it's the, the effects are more modest. I think it's important to emphasize, like in like, you know, very superficial cortical regions, you know, close to the received elements that get really good signal, like, you know, prefrontal or parietal cortex. But um, those aren't usually the, the areas we're um, necessarily most interested in, in some of these contexts we're talking about. So, um, yeah, no, I mean, I think it is there, the effects can be dramatic, uh, I think. Just to throw in a, it's important to note that a biomarker is a very interesting statistical thing. Right, because a biomarker is something with sufficient effect size that it falls outside of the normal distribution. So only an effect that looks like Z equals five or Z equals six is a candidate for biomarker. At the same time, you need enough data to find it's like a it's like a puzzle. You have to there's you know you need enough data to find that biomarker. And um, as Peter said, some of this may be quite nonlinear, where it's only the combination of a couple of different measures um, that we haven't even thought of. Um, that, sure. could, that actually turns into the biomarker. And I think this is another area where deep learning can help a lot because convolutional neural networks have intermediate hidden layers that, that, will, that will decipher these kinds of combinations. So again, now you, I think we have enough SNR on a, more, on a quite consistent basis to, come, to think again about um, looking at advanced analytic techniques with patient populations. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, yeah, Charles, I mean, even from your past papers, it's like you not only do functional MRI or, you know, multi-echo, but, you know, it seems like you're, you're focused on, you know, looking at other uh, information for, for biomarker. Uh, sure. You, yeah. So, um, so, yeah, so, so okay. So there's, there's hope, and that's good. Um, <laughs> uh, so... And, and we sort of hinted at other other methods that, that you know using other other measures, other behavioral measures uh, towards getting biomarkers that that could be useful in psychiatry. It'd be great. It would be great to actually have one a clinical inroad of fMRI that's more than just you know some pre-surgical mapping somewhere. Uh, sure. It actually scanning patients and making real decisions based on these maps. Uh, but two. Um, yeah, it would be it would be nice to have uh, you know more dissemination of of, of, of these methods. So, um, okay, so so now uh, uh, just want to finalize by just asking um, uh, what your future plans are. Um, maybe I'll start with Prontic uh, really quickly, um, just because you you mentioned that you just joined Serotype, and uh, that that's a really interesting company to me. Uh, that's uh, it seems like. 
I've been trying to promote uh, and, and talk about uh, you know, making imaging more clinically useful. Uh, I don't know if you wanted to talk briefly about that in, in terms of your future. Yeah, um, I think broadly, this, is, uh, this company is an effort to translate years of work in fMRI to actionable clinical tools, kind of on the back of multi-echo, which has the SNR to carry a lot of stuff. Um, one thing from a, like a philosophy point of view, um, I'm technically in kind of quote unquote industry right now, but really it's, the, it's a commercial arm of an academic effort. And it's something I've realized the past four years at Hyperfine translation is in large part a commercial activity. Um, and so, because there are all sorts of factors of operation that fall outside of straight science. And, and, um, and so that's something I learned at Hyperfine that I want to apply here. So I think we're going to continue on that. And one of our goals is to provide services to the community, to the academic community that will accelerate the adoption of these useful techniques like cloud-based analysis services and so on. Um, and uh, also working with uh, pharma companies in uh, drug discovery, that's our first aim. And then we have downstream aims of uh, ways to disseminate this technology to the wider array of people. And Charles, what are your, what are your future plans and interests? Uh, yeah, not, not quite as exciting uh, as it frantic just uh, laid out, you know, I'm still in my postdoc and, uh, you know, we have a series of studies currently underway, all of which are, you know, incorporating some element uh, of the benefits of multi-echo from Rye. Very, uh, you know, as I've kind of alluded to you know, various points in this discussion, like a lot of the questions I'm interested in um, pursuing are related to, uh, you, you know, individual uh, how, how functional networks are organized in individuals and, uh, you know, thinking potentially beyond just how, you know, variability and connectivity between regions may be related or distinguish, distinguishable of, uh, you know, psychiatric illnesses, but maybe thinking more about the kind of more general organizational principles of how these systems are kind of laid out on the cortical surface and whether or not that may be, um, you know, clinically useful information, but both for things like you know, again, like we talked about before, like for identifying targets for certain interventions, but also in just distinguishing them from, you know, uh, people without a psychiatric illness. Um, so kind of, kind of more than the, the vein of a biomarker effort. Yeah, that's really cool. I mean, it's good that you mentioned that uh, again. I, and and uh, just to pick up on that, uh, you know, a clinical application of fMRI is to, is to identify, you know, nodes that you can actually do, use either TMS or, or something to potentially, you know, neuromodulation or, or whatever. Um, that's another avenue for clinical application. That's not necessarily, you know, a, a biomarkers, but it's it's something that might be even more tractable earlier, uh, sooner. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so yeah, that's great. That's great. Um, well, yeah, I wish you the uh, both the, the the best of luck, and and hopefully, you know, maybe we'll revisit this in a few years and see how Multi-Echo is doing. And in the meantime, we'll, we'll try to uh, spread the word all the more. So great. All right. Well, thanks both of you for, for coming on, on the show and uh, I wish you the best. Neurosalience is brought to you by the Organization for Human Brain Mapping. This week's episode was produced by Alfie Wine and Anastasia Brofkin.